Hello, you're listening to Series 2 of Brownie, the podcast that celebrates the cultural confusion of being born in Britain with roots in Asia. Brownie Podcast is co-hosted by me, Shivani Kocha, and the brilliant Ishani Bhatt. We recorded this episode before the recent Black Lives Matter protests and Oriel College's decision to remove the Rhodes statue in Oxford, but we still hope our discussion of these will add something of value to the conversation. Due to lockdown restrictions, the format is a little different from usual. We really hope you enjoy it. Hello, uh, today we have the lovely Suk Sothi in for a chat. We met Suk at university where I was actually lucky enough to make him my college husband. After a few attempts. <laughs> after, yeah. after about three attempts. It wasn't, also, it, it wasn't the first time of my college husband. <laughs> it wasn't the first time of asking, was it? <laughs> Take him as my college husband. Multiple proposals. Have later. him as my college husband? I don't know. So after studying PP at Oxford and getting an MA in politics and contemporary history at King's College, London, Sook worked for the Sikh Press Association, which is a kind of national news agency representing the Sikh community in the UK. So thanks, Sook, for taking the time to come in and chat to us at Brownie Podcast. Yes, a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm very excited Sorry, to have I you. forced you as her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, husband. I know, playing the marital strings. Um, but yes, I think we should start with your early life. Um, and I think a good place to start is with your identity as a Sikh. Um, So for our listeners who don't know very much about Sikhism, would you be able to explain a little bit more about the religion and what Sikhism means to you? Yeah, so when you think of like South Asia, you think of India, Pakistan, most people think Hindus, they think Muslims, they might know Jains or Buddhists, but there's another religious group and we're Sikhs. Um, And we have quite a distinct path from the other South Asian religions that you might have heard of. So a very, very young religion founded in like the 16th century, um, based on the principle of the a, a divine love in all, basically, I could say, you know, I'm still learning loads about Sikh faith, Sikh philosophy, Sikh culture every single day of the week in myself. But for me, the, the clearest way is a love for God and a love for humanity and combining that sort of spiritual love with a very worldly determination of doing good and serving others. Can you tell us a bit, so... I remember once you told me that when you were younger, your religious sort of identity and your Sikh identity involved just going to the Gurdwara, like a couple of, well, every now and again. And, and now you sort of obviously strongly identify as a Sikh and it's been part of your your job. And you just said that, you know, you're thinking about it every every day of the week. So um, how did how did that come about? And, and what was it like to be a Sikh when you were growing up compared to... So, that? yeah, like most... Punjabi kids, like Sikh people, I guess. I just did stuff as a kid because I was told to do it, right? Mm. We went to the Gurdwara. I did stuff there because I was told to by my grandparents and parents. There was never really any interrogation about why or even what really were we doing. It was actually quite, I would say, ritualistic now. And then it's only when you develop that curiosity through other things. So like that curiosity I developed for politics and philosophy, which I then ended up going on to study later at university, just taking that and applying it to what I've been doing since I was young was like a real light bulb moment for me. Like, why do we do this? What is this? Like, what is the meaning of this stuff? Like, if you're forced to sit there for hours every week and you don't understand something that's going on, that's really alien to me now. Like, it was a very natural urge to just find out and to investigate. And that's literally how it started. Yeah, so it's quite an academic process almost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And which is really, really weird, I guess, when you talk to like other Sikhs or especially very practicing Sikhs or even religious people generally, mm-hmm. they'll say it's usually like the other way around almost. Like it mm-hmm. starts from a position of love or a position of, like a moment of faith or something like that. And then they do the academic stuff afterwards. For me, it's almost the other way around. So yeah, that's quite unusual in mm-hmm. my experience. Do you remember what that light bulb moment was when you... Just sitting there one day yeah. in the Godra and being like, you know what, I'm just so fed up, like, I'm going to find out what they're saying. Yeah. And then I did, I went home and Googled it and didn't know what to really Google. So you just type in seek into yeah. Google and just read what's on there. And then, you know, like when you fall into a rabbit hole of Wikipedia links and all the rest of it, a couple of hours later, you're finding out stuff about your own people, your your own identity that, that you didn't even know. It's interesting that you said you were using Google and Wikipedia and falling down a sort of 
internet rabbit hole as opposed to I, I don't know if I if there's even a question in this but I, before it's you know you might have sought out an elder in the community or spoken to people and do you think there's a, lots of people that are coming maybe to religion more through technology than they used to so much so for me I'm from rural Punjab like my family are from rural Punjab and when you're talking about you know people and where they're from in say back home people tend to forget that there's a real big rural urban divide mm-hmm. so all four of my grandparents came from farming families they were uneducated basically they were educated to the extent that they could read and write some of them usually the males but other than that they had no real sort of education um, and they had no real understanding about what they did either they just did stuff because they were told to life was very very simple for them in that way and they took as much of it as they could when they came over to the UK and started doing it then as well and it's only when I was afforded it's a privilege to be able to interrogate something like that that's mm-hmm. what I realized you know you have the time for a start like when you're coming here and working 12-hour shifts in factories you don't have time to then go and have quite esoteric discussions about religion or, or your mm-hmm. cultural practices um, but also yeah the technology factor was a huge factor mm-hmm. in helping that as well I think I've done the same like I think somebody was asking me like a work colleague was asking me about like Diwari and like what its significance was and I absolutely had no clue and I went onto the Wikipedia page as being like the spokesperson of Wikipedia but like that brown voice to kind of explain what it was and I think that is perhaps kind of the way in which our generation I think are engaging with these traditions in a bit more of an authoritative way because I mean I think there's this romanticism that's attached to like going to an elder and learning about religion from this kind of spiritual elder figure. But I think very often it's when we're by ourselves and we don't necessarily have those elders around us Mm. that we might want to be starting that connection. Um, And the internet is a thing that we use day to day, so why wouldn't we kind of use it as our first touch point for that journey? So there are a couple of factors I think here. First is a language barrier. How many people can go to an elder and speak their language? You know, like I could speak Punjabi to my grandparents but to use a terminology that is required to talk about religious stuff is stuff that I'm only learning now yeah. and I'm only figuring out. Um, and that's quite academic. I think the second thing is, you know, South Asian traditions, South Asian cultures, we have quite a deferential sort of attitude towards elders. There's like mm-hmm. uh, an, uh, an idea of respect or how you go about talking to them. So that might intimidate some people mm-hmm. as well. And for a lot of people, they just don't have their elders, right? Like yeah, I'm, very, I'm yeah. very lucky to have had grandparents that I could talk to. Some people don't have that. Mm. And it's also that impulse that to interrogate in the first place. I know you were talking about the luxury of asking questions, but also I suppose, do you think there's something that coming from um, the kind of British society that we do, we almost... Uh, we we don't feel like we feel like we can almost rebel. We can dare to interrogate things, whereas like previous generations before us might have just accepted things because that's the way they were. Whereas I know when I was twelve, I used to go around saying I was a you know a complete atheist and that I didn't believe in anything. And actually, that that's quite audacious and and it comes from a sort of educational privilege and arrogance. And I'm not saying it's a good thing, but I, I maybe my mum or my grandma would have never dare to say to her parents at the age of 12 that they, you know, they didn't believe in all the things that they'd been handed down from the generations before. Oh, of course, yeah, God, I, I can't imagine if, like, my parents had turned around and said something like that to their parents. Um, and for me as well, like, having a schooling here in the UK, like, you're encouraged to ask questions at school. Mm. For me, what I was doing was just an extension of what I was already doing in school. Mm. So that's really how I started, but that feels like a million million years ago now honestly like the kid that I was using stuff for on the internet and you know I've spent the last couple of years at a project which has been putting content on the internet for other people to be like that Mm -hmm. so I've sort of come full circle in a way already it feels like a a really long journey Mm -hmm. already even though I'm only 24 (laughs) (laughs) and and even you know you're describing quite an insular process at the beginning definitely of being on the internet and um, sort of it academically and forensically looking into Sikhism but when did that for you sort of merge into a, a kind of communal feeling when did you start okay so this is a good point actually the the stuff that I've been saying now it 
it wasn't just that like there I've always gone to Punjabi school as a kid mm-hmm. usually because my parents made me to so there was always that community aspect there um but it was a social one it was one that where you go and meet people you have friends with them this sort of interrogation was actually very separate and different mm-hmm. but I had both and I've always actually had both in my life um so it neither came at the expense of the other thankfully because mm-hmm. one was when you're at home on your own and the other was when you're in the community anyway mm-hmm. um um you know again that that's that's a privilege to be able to grow up in a community where there's so many people on on my doorstep there's something that i felt later on when i was at university and i didn't have a whole community on my on my doorstep in the mm-hmm. same way um but for people who are just say on google or just researching stuff when they don't have a community mm-hmm. i imagine it's really different for them yeah so how do you have both reconciled quite well with each other in your mind and do they do they kind of merge together at all or yeah they merge yeah. together perfectly yeah absolutely perfectly for me and even more so because you know I've I've just spent a couple of years doing a job in which which basically requires both mm-hmm. so what what I ended up doing was sort of a culmination of both in a way mm-hmm. which is something actually before today I haven't really thought too much about there you go brownie podcast <laughs> <laughs> changing lives actually just mentioned your experiences at university and how that was a kind of transition point with you interrogating your your identity both religious and cultural um and you were actually president of the oxford sikh society um so i think it would be really interesting for our listeners to hear what your experiences were um being president and then also kind of more broadly um to hear your opinion on on what you think can be done to improve um, kind of the access initiatives for, for supporting people of colour to, 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 you know, go to universities like Oxford. Okay, so there's a few interesting things that I found out from my experience. The first is that the society wasn't very big. Mm-hmm. We're very small, we're a very close-knit society. The people in years uh, above me and below me, they're not just my friends, like we're so close. We do think of ourselves as a family. We go to each other's weddings. In fact, some even marry each other. Um, it's one of those where there is literally like a second family to me. So I didn't feel like I was president president of an organisation in a way that you might do with other societies. Mm-hmm. So I had that when I was in Oxford, like on the day-to-day running the society stuff. What I found really interesting was then when I would go to, say, a National Sikh event or another event or even just a non-Sikh event and i say I'm president of the Oxford Sikh Society, it would credentialize me in such a way that just opened so many doors and people were thinking, oh my God, like you must have done so much. I actually know people begged me to be president just so the society could, could continue. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't have that many Sikhs at all across the university of, I don't know, like tens of thousands of people. But when I was there and I was going and doing stuff outside of Oxford, people were like, okay, this is a guy that we can talk to or this is a guy that will know something or can put us in touch with somebody. So it was very, very weird experience for me for people to treat me like that when actually the reality was quite different on the ground. Mm. And before you started Oxford, did you have an idea that you were going to sort of find the Sikh community within the university or... Because I was just suddenly struck by um, the fact that, well, Ashani and I, we all met at Oxford and I had absolutely nothing to do with any other sort of Indian Hindu community at all there. And I think... Mm part of the reason why we started this podcast was because it was that sense of sort of isolation and awareness that we talked to think about our identity with each other um, in a way that we, we couldn't really with anybody else. But I, I realised just now as you were talking that I never actually even tried to find that community. And so I was just wondering how you started. So I had a very strong group of Punjabi friends at school and it didn't take long to be in Oxford, which was a totally alien environment mm. in so so many different ways, right? Like when, when you start a, a place like that coming from a, a school in the border of Kent and, and London. Um, and I was just like, this is the most obvious place to go to find some to find friends mm. and to find people who, who I have stuff in common with. I really didn't think it would be as much a, of my life as it was at the time. That was never really the intention. I had done a few things before university like written a few blog posts maybe about some like interesting stuff that I'd seen in the Sikh community or or thoughts but that was very much like stuff on the side there was never this idea that okay I'd go to Sikh Sok I would lead it I would then go and do a job which was related to that afterwards Mm -hmm. like if you'd have told me that at the age of 17 I'd be like 
no, I want to go, I want to become an economist or whatever I wanted to be. And, and like that brown part, I mean, that South Asian part of me would be just something on the side almost. Mm-hmm. So it's been very, very different to my expectations. And, and life I, I, changing then, in a way. Hugely life changing, yeah. hugely, hugely so. We said in our introduction that you studied PPE at Oxford and you're um, quite a political, well, you're a political interrogator. You've told us about how you interrogated um, your religion as well. And so I suppose just drawing on those two ideas, um, being a Sikh and being like a politically interested person for for people that don't know much about Sikhism, how are those two related? And do you find that they cross over into each other a lot? Um, Yeah. Yeah, so there's like the philosophical side, you could say, of Sikh thought, like Sikh political philosophy. When I was at Oxford, I studied political philosophy. I also studied philosophy of like metaphysics, you could say, like philosophy of knowledge. The whole lot was European or Western philosophy. Mm -hmm. There was no non-Western philosophy at all that I studied in three years. To say that I studied philosophy at university is, is categorically a lie. I studied Western philosophy mm. and the fact that most people don't see a distinction is like hugely problematic. Yeah. I remember there was uh, a guest lecturer who did a, a set of uh, four lectures on Vedic philosophy in, in uh, Oxford mm. and I remember going and it was so packed there were people outside sitting in the corridor wanting to listen in. He, he had the door open and people were in the corridor listening in. Now I've never been to another lecture like that. And these are students, right? Students who probably wouldn't go to their lectures in the morning. But that's, it was then that I realised, actually, what am I really studying here? I'm studying like European thinkers. I'm studying Western thinkers. I managed to go through the whole of university without studying anything from Africa, anything from South America. I did one paper on South Asian politics, and that was basically the only non-Western thing I had done. Mm. So on one side, I was like, okay, I'm interrogating at a really deep level Western philosophy. But I have no idea what, like, the philosophy of my ancestor says about this or that there are different theories. And, you know, when you when you don't even think like that, you think, oh, maybe th- there wasn't any such thing. Maybe there wasn't any such philosophy. But, of course, that's just wrong, right? Of course, there is just that it's not in these sorts of institutions. Mm. So I'm going to turn it back on you <laughs> as English students. Yeah. How much non-Western literature did you study? I'm actually quite curious. Nothing right. at all. Nothing. Really? Nothing. Well, so there was this one paper that I ended up doing in my first year, but it was like text that I had picked together and mm. I'd forged. Like I was never taught anything. Yeah. Particularly. It's crazy when you think, right? Like right. how many English language speakers are there around the world? How much literature has been written in the English language yeah. by like people of all different cultures and societies and all the rest of it? But how much of it gets to a point Mm. at an elite university where you can say okay this is on the syllabus that's that that's when it really hit me and that's when I really I'd say started getting involved in political activism that's that's how it started so the roads must fall movement was going on at the time which you might remember that was a very sort of clear-cut movement about getting that statue down Mm. um Oriel College I think it was now and I was sort of involved with that I was also involved in uh, like decolonizing the curriculum and diversifying the curriculum as well so like Punjabi as a language is I think it's in, in the top 10 or top 20 spoken languages in the world. You can't study any Punjabi at Oxford. Mm. You can study Hindi, you can study Arabic, you can study Persian, you can study Hebrew, you can study so many other languages. There's n- not a single bit of Punjabi you can study at Oxford. It's like, what, we don't have the literature? We don't have the medieval poetry? Of course we do. We mm. have it all. And the thing I realised was that I can make as much noise as I want. I can be as much a pain in the ass as I want with these people, but I'm gone after three years. Mm. And it's so easy to just see wave and wave of student come and go to bat them off, give small concessions. And that's when I was like, okay, I'm going to need to do something more enduring. or I'm going to need to really like put a lot of energy and a lot of time into reforming something if I'm passionate about it. Mm. And did you, did anything change while you're at Oxford or since, do you think? No, it hasn't. And people try, people push. I, there was a huge movement to get a centre of Sikh and Punjab studies. There's a, there's a centre of Hindu studies, centre yeah. for Buddhist studies and stuff. Yeah. 
we were trying for ages to get a centre for six studies. I mean, I was studying at the time as well and trying to have a life. Yeah, and all yeah, yeah, of like, course. Hugely. And especially, like I said, I was pretty much the only person in my third year who had the time to do this from a Sikh or a Punjabi point of view. Mm. There, might, there might have been one or two other people in the university who knew enough to be able to help me, but when it came to actually doing stuff, like, there were there that, there, that few students. Yeah, well, I mean, when you look at the math and you think about how many Sikhs there are actually at, at Oxford or at whatever university, and then you look at the, the smaller pool, you're just going smaller and smaller. Smaller and smaller and smaller, and you realise I'm the only one left after a while. Yeah. Mm. After not too long. It was very isolating. It was like, uni was a great time for me in that it's probably the, the most sociable I've ever been. I lived with my friends. I haven't lived with my friends before since, you know, I had a huge social groups, both inside, outside, college, whatever. But at the same time, it was a really isolating experience because of that. Because of that activism that I was also doing. Mm. So there, there were contrasts there. And then so would you say that that, that kind of, that feeling that, you know, you wanted to see some sort of a change, but given the circumstances of being studying and and also kind of having to get on with life at Oxford, do you think that was the kind of the feeding factor into then your work at the Press Association and feeling like there was still more to be done with that role? Yeah, so definitely I think that came about because the politics that I studied was a lot of political communication. So I was studying like even in the Blair era, how modern communication changed government communication and then CPA was set up in my second year and when I found out about it I was like this is exactly the sort of thing that I've been studying this is exactly the sort of thing that I actually know something about it's the stuff I want to get involved in I knew the founder I knew the co-founder um, they got in touch with me about something and like hours later on the phone after we talked about everything we could think of to do with communication I was like right I know that this is something I want to do um and yeah, I basically juggled that like in my second year, especially in my last term. We, did, we didn't have exams in our second year. So in the last term, my second year, I think I was coming down to London like once or twice a week, every single week in term time, just for a Sikh event or something to do with Sikh PA or something or whatever. Um, and then before long, like it literally just snowballed into, okay, media appearances, briefing other people for media appearances, keeping an eye on what the media is saying, like checking accuracy in media stories. They just The work just became phenomenal. And then when I left university and the job was offered, there was a job coming up. I was like, right, I want this. And how did you find it working for CP? Did you find it empowering, especially after what you've just been saying about your time at Oxford being quite isolating in some ways? Um, did yeah, did you find it empowering to be this sort of representative voice and you know getting the seat message um, across, especially in in the media um, in in this country and and abroad? So the point of CPA wasn't that we would be the voice, is that we would be the guys behind the scenes mm -hmm. and that we would basically be facilitating media contact between Sikhs who had something to say and media organisations. And that's something I really enjoyed. Like I would do the odd media appearance and stuff, um, but usually when it was either too short notice or it's actually related to something that I studied or, or said, but usually what we were doing was putting people in touch. We were connecting a marginalised community mm -hmm a group that had huge barriers into the, to the national press with the national press. And we were spending our time breaking down that barrier, putting the effort in with journalists to cultivate those relationships where we could then feed stories to and from the community and the press. So it was a very, it, it was like, what, two years? It was two years old, I think, when I, when I started, two or three years old. Yeah. We were just still in that very formative stage of actually like establishing ourselves, establishing what we actually do. Um, and over the past few years, it's basically been consolidating that and expanding it. And just to be sort of to paint everything in, in black and white, why is it important um, that, you know, your your community have a voice in mainstream media and aren't marginalised? Why, why is it important? So the obvious thing is accuracy. You wouldn't believe just the stuff that's on the internet. I know we've just done a whole like thing about going on Google and seeing stuff, but yeah. there's so much stuff on Wikipedia that's just wrong and false. There's so much stuff on other websites that's wrong. You wouldn't believe like journalists just type in seek, they type in whatever, they take the first hit, they copy and paste it and that's it, like that's them done. I see it all the time and I pull journalists up on it all the time as Can well. Can you give us a, an example that you've seen? Just also, Vasaki is not the sick new year, but if you go into Google, there'll be 50 or so hits that will say it is, 
And we actually went to Ipso with the Times on this, where I had to write 11 pages of evidence basically saying it's not. Um, and in the end, Ipso upheld the complaint. Ipso being the press regulator. Yeah, they're, they're, they're the press regulator. Yeah. They, they, um, they have no teeth. I am not a fan of them. <laughs> if you like former journalists and stuff like that. It's, uh, if you want to get anywhere with the press, you need a full-time organisation. Yeah. So that's why CPA was set up. You can't put that work in, cultivate those relationships with journalists. And, you know, what do they say, like, a lie's gone halfway around the world before truth has got its boots on, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so a lot of what we were doing was, okay, seeing uh, an error within minutes of it being published, getting onto the editor, getting it changed within another 10 minutes. So no one would know. If you've seen it 10 minutes after publication, no one ever know that there was an error there in mm-hmm. the first place. So that was a lot of what we were doing. Um, a lot of it was just saying to the press, you don't get a free pass now to write this sort of stuff. Because I can be individually angry, you can be individually angry. If we're just sitting at home being angry, then it doesn't really matter to people who are writing the stuff. So we've got to mobilise, we've got to get ourselves together. And this is what we were doing as well. We were were able to coordinate that sort of response Mm. and find out where where did our power lie as a community. And I think this is something that people don't think about clearly enough they see existing power structures and they think okay these are these are the legitimate ones and we should go through these and this is something that my politics education really got me thinking about is okay no actually Sikhs have a huge amount of power we have like the power to mobilize more than pretty much any other religious group in the country I would say why so I genuinely don't know and this is something that I've studied when I came to my, my master's thesis as well imagine in the 1980s before you had mobile phones, before you had social media, you had hundreds of thousands of Sikhs within days coming to Hyde Park to protest. To organise a protest on that scale now, even with social media, within two, three days would be really hard. Ask someone like Owen Jones. But to do it back then, when half the people didn't even know English, let alone have mobile phones and social media. So the history is there. I don't know the specific reasons for it. I would love to go and investigate it. But that's something I know, that we have that mobilisation power. Mm-hmm. When we have a protest as well, you've got guys with turbans and swords and long flowing beards. And they make for great pictures. You know that there's going to be a press photographer. You know it's going to be on the front of the Times. That's, that's something we can guarantee you. So it's about thinking as a community, where do our strengths lie? Where does our power lie? And that sort of stuff. And, and using it, mobilising it. Mm. And have you noted, noted like, uh, over the process of you working with the Sikh Press Association and it developing and it mobilising the voice of the Sikh community, have you noticed a change within the way in which journalists and media represent this voice? Yeah, there's definitely been a change. They've got someone on their backs now. The, the real hard thing to understand is that when people use the label Indian or they use the label brown, it just erases so much diversity within that label sometimes right the complexity so you would get newspapers coming to us and saying we don't understand a brown person wrote this article how can you have a problem with it um they would sometimes say but they're a Sikh and we're like that doesn't make what they're saying right it doesn't make what this that doesn't give them a free pass to make anything up right Mm. we had Sikhs in the media even journalists of a Sikh background they would call themselves and if, if you have an inaccuracy, there's an inaccuracy. I don't really care who wrote it. Mm. But it's like explaining really basic stuff to media sometimes. Or they would think, okay, we've got a guy with a brown sounding name. We don't actually know what part of India is from. We don't know what his culture is. But we're going to get him to write about Sikhs. We're going to get him to write about Punjab. Because, I don't know, he might be from South also. Mm. And it's like, you have experiences. You can definitely write about your experiences. But are you doing it on behalf of a community that you're not part of? And we saw that time and time again comes back to what I was saying earlier about being president of Oxford Seeksock. There are ways in which people are credentialized in the modern world. There are, there are standard ways, either through LinkedIn or through whatever, that people see you as a representative of the community. And actually, communities might have their own ways or other ways of credentializing somebody. Mm-hmm. So if that's what we've been saying as Seek PA. Actually, you want to get this guy to give a comment? Well, you know, in, in this, guy's, this other guy is, le- is learned in Sikh scripture. Or actually teaches Sikh philosophy. So why don't you ask him about the theology rather than, say, a political representative? Mm. You wouldn't go to Jacob Rees-Mogg and ask for, like, a a definitive answer on Catholic doctrine just because he's a Catholic and a really ardent Catholic at that. But it's okay to go to, like, a random Sikh. Like, people talk to Monty Pandasar all the time about Sikh theology. Really? Or, you like, Neelam Gill, the model. Like, I love all of these people. They're great in their own ways. But just because... 
you you're famous for something and you're also a Sikh doesn't yeah. then you know make you an authority on certain certain mm-hmm. stuff yeah and, and you're right because it's a double standard in the in the way that as you just said the Jacob Rees Mogg example or you were in sort of the I don't want to use necessarily use the word white but like the kind of power structure we live in which is white by definition it's you always have certain people who are experts and actually just you aren't an expert just because you are born into a Not certain at all. culture at all. or your parents come from a certain place I suppose the the flip side on how that's felt within the the British Asian community or or more marginalized communities is because we don't have you know 10 voices that look like us they're accessible. You don't have the choice. So we have two names that we can go to or, you know, that, that the press instinctively think of. And that's a bigger conversation that's about getting those voices and getting those seats at the table. And so I suppose it's kind of a, you know, it's a problem that's causing and exacerbating yeah. the problem. So you need the, and you need an external intervention yeah. to break yeah. that cycle. And that's what CPA was designed to do. Actually find develop talent of young articulate speakers young articulate knowledgeable people and then pitch them to the press as actually these are also commentators right it's not about erasing anybody else but it's saying if you want this sort of thing then we know enough people because we have a a whole national database basically like our, our contacts stretched even not not even just through the uk but throughout the world can you tell us about some of your successes any particular examples the successes are the the ones that I feel the most are the small ones, mm-hmm. the ones that change everyday behavior. We have we have like big cases, big landmark cases, but a lot of the time it's just reminding a journalist about this or saying that or just changing something small here and there because it's the stuff that people don't realize that you're doing it. Even in the sea community, people don't realize that we're doing it that that we have this sort of intervention because it gets resolved too quickly for for it to permeate into then like sick society quick enough um and that's the real rewarding thing for me because ideally you don't want to seek a pa forever to like be on journalist back or to change behavior you want that to happen organically yeah. by themselves mm. so it's about you know making journalists understand why something you know why we say the sick scriptural guru instead of the sick holy book like I could find you an expert to talk about a sick conception of metaphysics, but we all know that's not going to make it into the sun or the mail or whatever. <laughs> but I can have that conversation with a journalist and say, this is actually why it's really important to us as a community. And while you can't explain it to your readers and we can't explain it to you fully, like we can have that conversation where you can trust us and we can build that dialogue. Mm-hmm. Within the sphere of British politics, let's say, how how do you how does that affect your experiences um, to be a Sikh person within within Britain? What's it like? So there's two sides of this. I've just come back from Canada, where there are where there's a sizable Sikh population, where in many ways they're more ahead in in politics and in political life than Sikhs are here in the UK. Sikhs in the UK are quote unquote a model minority. They're seen as a model minority by mm-hmm. the British establishment. And there are various reasons for that. A really big one is of loyal Sikh service in the world wars. If you go to Canada, Canada the Sikhs don't have that model model minority status as well. People openly go to a Sikh, go back home, and Sikhs are treated there like you would think Muslims are are treated here. But Sikhs here do fall into a model minority trap, and some Sikhs love it. Some Sikhs lap it up. They play on it. And they are, you know, they use it to propel themselves forward. And other Sikhs like me say, actually, let's just interrogate this mm-hmm. and really think about, is this how we want to be defining ourselves as a community? Because I think there's so many good things about Sikhs in and of themselves. We don't need to be defining ourselves as good Sikhs in relation to something else. And I know that we've discussed this quite a lot personally, um, but I think it would also then be interesting, having had this discussion about kind of what a a, a good Sikh is, this is all in inverted commas as well, a good Sikh, a good British citizen is, to have your your voice in terms of how you would describe your identity then. Would you would you want to instinctively or formally describe yourself as a Sikh, as a British Sikh? Like, how would you, you verbalise it? So, 
For me, I know I'm definitely a Sikh. Mm-hmm. I know I'm definitely Punjabi, and I know I'm definitely British. Yeah. I don't know whether there is a contradiction between all those things. Mm-hmm. There might be, but day to day, like I, I can't deny any of those labels. I don't really want want to deny any of those labels. My identity, like ours and like most people our age of of our background, is a complex one. Yeah. And it's one that has its roots in colonialism. Its roots for some of us in partition roots in uh, religious warfare and roots in who came to this country and when they came and how do they settle here and all the rest of it like that's a deeply personal thing for each and every single one of us i think one way in which my identity has changed and which the way i've seen my identity changes the label of indian mm-hmm. um and you know if you'd asked me as a 14 15 year old are you indian i would have gone yeah and i'm pretty happy to be seen as an indian i think that's a really like fine label and now I think it's a really damaging label, especially for Sikhs, especially for people from Punjab, um, and especially for people who are raising their voices against human rights atrocities in India, who are like facing penalties and, and persecution because of it. So like for, for me, the Indian label is fundamentally an, in, in, an inaccurate one. Like all four of my grandparents are older than India. Mm-hmm. And coming from Punjab, I have more in common with someone from Pakistan, Punjab, than I do from like a whole load of people in it. Look, look how like diverse we are. Yeah. How different we are in terms of like the, the, the differences in our food, the differences in our religion, the differences in our language. Like India is such a huge country that I don't think it can sustain itself as a country. And I, I think the only way it has sustained itself as a country is through the repression of minorities and through mm. separatist movements. Like that's a controversial thing to say. I've said it on radio, I've said it before and I've gotten a lot of hate from Indian nationalists because of it but that's genuinely my thoughts that it's a label that only exists still today because of the repression of certain people Mm. Um, and so that's like a really political thing for me um, and a really personal thing for me as well like for as long as I don't get justice for Sikh genocide by the Indian state I don't really fancy calling myself Indian. So when the state of India was created in six were in Punjab in the northwestern state of Punjab in India they started demanding some rights more rights Punjab is referred to as the breadbasket of India it's like the agricultural economy of India is basically centered in Punjab it's really important for the Indian economy as a whole um six are a separate people to Hindus it's a totally separate religion it's a totally separate way um and basically they were asking for devolution rights language rights as well so we've talked a little bit about Punjabi language politics in India like language rights very basic stuff um it culminated in 1984 when the Indian government sent the Indian army into the city of Darbasa which is referred to as the golden temple in Amritsar um and they basically waged war on uh prominent Sikhs who were there and they killed like thousands of civilians they killed thousands of Sikhs they destroyed the whole shrine and then afterwards they embarked on a genocide of, of Sikhs in India, um, both in June of 1984 across Punjab, but then in November when um, Indira Gandhi, the Indian Prime Minister, when her Sikh bodyguards assassinated her, the governing party then encouraged and facilitated a genocide of Sikhs across India in retaliation. So that's what I mean when I say Sikh genocide, I'm referring to 1984. Um, it's something that I'm really sort of passionate about, raising awareness about, just because obviously it's a genocide, it's a genocide of my own people, but when I did my master's, I wrote my dissertation on this. Yeah. And I wrote my dissertation on the fact that it was actually the Thatcher government, the British government, that gave military advice to the Indian government to attack Darbar Sahib in, in Amritsar. Um, and, I, and my dissertation was the first academic writing of any kind on this. I, I found the papers. The papers had already been found before, but only a few years ago. And nobody had really interrogated them or researched them properly. Um, in academia so my dissertation was the first sort of academic analysis of all of that advice and the, the discussions in British government about that and the impact that that had um, the, the British government sent an SAS officer to Amritsar to have a look around to do a reconnaissance trip and to advise on the best way of launching a military attack um, and that's something obviously deeply painful it's deeply painful for me for my people but also my identity as a British person right mm-hmm. like I have to reconcile my identity with the fact that my government gave military advice to attack, you know, my, my holiest place. Mm. Um, so that's something really, really dear to me, not just through what I've been doing at SICPA, but also on the academic side as well. I was very unfortunate actually this time last year to present a paper on it at a conference. Obviously that whole part of the 
that that process the the British intervention is still very fresh and very unknown well you know people it's unknown but also the the government the the David Cameron government um did an inquiry into it I studied the inquiry's findings as well um have you ever seen yes minister yes prime minister heard of like the comedy about like how civil servants just whitewash everything i remember you talking a lot about it it was it was basically one of those reports like it's a terrible report when you read it 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 covers up so much um the guy who compiled the report has actually died now the civil servant has died um a lot of the papers have gone missing again fake quotes inverted commas gone missing um obviously many people from the thatcher government have now passed away as well so it really looks like we're not going to get to the bottom of this, um, but I'm going to do as much as I can, and I have done already, I guess. And is this information available in India at all? Oh God, no, no, flip it, no, no way. <laughs> like, you even have half of the conversation that we've had now, and you put it on the airwaves in India, and there would be a policeman knocking on my door, like ninety percent probability. So no, people don't talk about this sort of stuff and they definitely don't write and publish about it and you could not pay me any sum of money in the world to go to India and to present my paper because <laughs> I probably wouldn't be coming back. So this is a huge question and I know I'm very conscious that it, you you could take you know years answering it but especially for lots of our listeners who might not know um, what the distinction is really between identifying as a Punjabi and identifying as an Indian. In fact, some of them might not even know where Punjab is. And so would you mind just kind of bringing it back to basics and explaining um, a so little bit about why you feel that way? The, the easiest way to describe it is that what is thought of as Punjab and this idea of Punjabi culture and all the Punjabi language actually straddles two countries. It straddles India and Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the majority of Punjab was in Pakistan before it was partitioned. And when the partition of India happened again, the idea of partition of India, not every state in India was partitioned. Actually, it's more accurate to say the partition, especially on the Western side, it was the partition of Punjab. It was Punjab that was actually partitioned as a state mm-hmm. and as a culture. There was, there was huge, huge migration, obviously, back and forth. But there is a sense of Punjabi culture did get split into in partition. And because both are border states, both are used by then the Indian and the Pakistan government against the other, right? Because the nationalism has always been there since partition. Wars have been fought between India and Pakistan. And as a Punjabi on the Indian side, you're taught that you're different from the Punjabi who might be like 30, 40 miles away from you on the Pakistan side of the border. Even though your families might have coexisted very peacefully for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the founder of the Sikh faith was born in Pakistan. So many people can't go to Pakistan from India to, to for, for pilgrimage. Like Lahore was the, the capital of the Sikh empire. And if you think of Lahore nowadays, you don't think Sikh. Mm, don't. And if you think Amritsar, you think Golden Temple, Harmandar Sahib. But Amritsar was actually a very Muslim city before partition. Mm. If you think about Jallianwala Bagh, we've just had the centenary. Even Punjabis in Pakistan now, they write with a different script. And if you go to Punjab in India, Punjabi as a language has been marginalised very intentionally, the language politics that have been played because they want to bring everybody under Hindi because it makes you feel more Indian and therefore bolsters your nationalism. You go and you, if you look at road signs in Punjab, Punjabi is a third language after Hindi and English. Mm. And that terrifies me. So my Punjabi is better now than it was as a child. I learned to read and write a bit at Punjabi school, but I was very much a troublemaker there. I didn't want to be there. I didn't learn much. I mainly taught myself afterwards. I taught myself a lot of like Punjabi literature because I see what's going on and the language politics at play. And for me personally, the preservation of Punjabi as a language is a huge part of bridging that gap between India and Pakistan and really dissolving that the real destructive nationalism that has built up between India and Pakistan. And bringing that into sort of today's world and, you know, we've spoken extensively about (laughs) the rise of nationalism in India and um, the sort of, we we see all the time now in the news, there's always things going on between um, Pakistan and India and and, in Kashmir and and everywhere. And 
I guess, yeah, could you just talk a, a bit about that and what, um, what, what can we do sitting here? And I know you just said that you've educated yourself in Punjabi. What can, what can we all do? What can me and Ashani do to kind of just keep that, like, keep it, uh, an understanding of what's going on a bit more alive than it, than it is now. So on the way here, I read a tweet by, uh, quite a prestigious journalist who said that India has become a fascist state because of what's going on in Kashmir. And I read it and I was like, it hasn't become a fascist state. Like for six, it's been a fascist state ever since its inception. The biggest thing you can do is arm yourself with knowledge. Without knowledge, we don't have any way of critiquing or of discussing or of doing any of the sort of things that people who want to repress, regardless of where they are, regardless of who they are, if you have knowledge and you can educate yourself, then you can discuss it and you can talk about it. And that's always the first step. Having an open conversation and asking someone, especially asking a Sikh, you wouldn't believe the number of times a Sikh might say, okay, I'm really anti-Modi and I'm really anti-Hindu nationalist. And they get shut down. They're not asked why. And it comes back to our first point about interrogation. Like if you don't ask people questions and you're not going to find out and you're not going to know. And these are people's real experiences, their lived experiences. I've met people who have been tortured by the Indian government. I've met people who can't go back to India. Maybe I'm one of those myself. I don't even really want to think about it, but it, that might be true, right? If I went back to India tomorrow, I wouldn't be safe. And not just safe from food or from a car accident, but like <laughs> actually safe politically. That's yeah. terrifying as a 24-year-old. Mm, yeah. Like, flip it. No, I didn't think I was going to be doing any of this sort of stuff a few years ago. And I haven't done anything apart from just talk about a genocide. I suppose 2019 was also a kind of quite a big year, given the fact that there was the Indian election. Yeah. Um, and taking the stance of kind of how the election was felt in the UK, um, we're brownie, so we're approaching things from kind of a British, uh, British Indian perspective. Um did you think that there was a kind of a rising sense within the this the Sikh the Punjabi community of critiquing that process from a British a British Punjabi perspective slightly more? Yes, and I think what made it easier was having Trump in the White House in America and having Brexit here. Because people are talking about the rise of populism, people are talking about the rise of nationalism, they're talking about it in a Western way. Yeah. And it's much easier to then make that connection and say, actually this has been going on for a while in our homeland. This is actually not new for us. And if you think Trump is scary, then actually I think Modi is 10 times scarier. And it's easy to generate that that dialogue. Mm. Whereas before, if you're starting from scratch and you're starting from somebody who thinks liberal Western democracies are liberal Western democracies and India is also a liberal Western democracy basically, but just with a load of brown people in it, then how are you gonna have that conversation? But it is much easier to have that conversation. I think you can't get away, right, from the news reports of the lynchings of Muslims or of the rapes or, like, really horrible stuff that's going on in the name of Hindu nationalism there. And, like, real right-wing Hindu-Indian nationalism. Like, it, there, there's a fundamentalism to it that people can see, whereas I think before it's much harder for people to see. It'll always be easier because of technology, even when the government tries to shut down internet in Kashmir for... I don't know, don't know how many days it's been now. But it's kind of a double-edged sword in a way because, you know, we can say that Bolsonaro or Modi are Trumpian or whatever, but and, and that's true because the, the conversation, the words are on people's fingertips, they're more willing to listen. But then also, it's kind of what we've been saying for however long we've been talking, it's also reductive in a way to simplify things and make those comparisons. And so it's hard to know really where... How, how to approach things or whether it's really a good thing that people are, are talking about it more if it's not in, a new, in the kind of nuanced way that it needs to be. So I have, I have two things to say on this. The first is that it's good as a starting point. Mm -hmm. You can just have a very simple common ground. It can get more complicated later. There's no point in trying to start with something so complicated that people don't engage with it in the first place. The second thing is India was a colony, it has like structures that the British gave it, that the British instituted, the British did so much in India for, you know, mainly bad, in fact, all pretty much bad. Um, and India is seen as a Westminster style democracy and a democracy founded by, you know, people who are trying to imitate like Western democracy. So I think there is a use in having that conversation with India specifically where we can say, okay, like you think it's a democracy in this sort of way, let's see the ways in which it's not, which say you wouldn't be able to have with like Brazil or China or another country mm -hmm. like that. 
Um, but I think definitely as a starting point, if you're getting people to think of Modi like Trump for all the inaccuracies and all the ways in which they're different, that's a good page to start with. If people are thinking Modi is like any other normal Western leader, then you're getting, then I think it's much harder to start from, from that. But there, there comes a point where like, okay, how are we going to categorize him? Are we categorizing him as the leader of the world's largest democracy? Which, by the way, I hate the BBC for this. <laughs> I love the BBC for so much, but their coverage of Indian elections is terrible because it's always premised on the world's largest democracy. That's like, if you look at all their coverage, that's all it is. And other people have pointed it out as well. Mm-hmm. I think it's we like, might have also used that very line. Yeah. Oh, we, <laughs> we did, we did. So it's like, okay, <laughs> the, these, these phrases crop up time and time again. They're so easy to use for a reason. So when we're, when we're thinking about, okay, do they apply actually in the way that we think they apply? And if, if it takes the image of Trump to start that questioning, I don't have a problem with it. What's next? What's coming up for you? Is there anything you, or anything you'd like to shout out um, on on Brownie podcast yeah, um, projects? Anything? There are so many. Uh, nothing for myself, but mm-hmm. the real rewarding thing about the job that I've been doing for the past few years is that I see so much new stuff coming from so many people who are politically engaged, who are fantastic writers, who are fantastic poets or singers. Don't lose hope because there's so many people up and coming that I think are going to make like a huge change in their communities maybe to the world as a whole like i would love that I, i'm genuinely really optimistic about some of the people coming up in the Sikh and punjabi community in the communities that i've been a part of um so yeah this might not have been the happiest podcast you've recorded but <laughs> I'm, I'm not gonna leave here sad well i think that kind of sums you up because we just asked you to do a shout out for yourself and you said you were feeling optimistic and tried to you know give a leg up to other people and i just wanted to say that I always feel like about that you're very very generous with what you know and and you're very wise and you're optimistic despite all the sad shit that we we've been saying for a long time so thank you so much it's honestly always a pleasure to know thank to you. you for having me um thank you thanks yeah. thank you Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, please rate, subscribe and spread the word. Give us a follow on Instagram at browniepodcast or email us at browniepodcast at gmail.com. You've been listening to Brownie Podcast with Ashani Bart, Shivani Kocha, produced by George Swainston. See you next time.